farmers markets have been instrumental in feeding people's interest from paddock to plate. Hi, I'm Melina Morrison, CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals with our Michael Kavanagh, who's on the road in South Australia. Just where the food comes from, not just at the paddock, but increasingly people want to know the complete road the food travels before hitting their plate. When an abattoir in South Australia's Fluro Peninsula closed, it left the area's primary producers without a means to process their animals. They decided to look at buying the abattoir as a cooperative. It's now looking at very much value adding and having everyone from the producers to cafes, restaurants and haulers involved so there would be a complete product. BCCM's Michael Kavanagh was left wanting to taste the food of the region. Melina, it certainly has the uh, taste buds salivating because it's an area that's well known for its primary production, particularly in the meat area. And uh, so the farmers, they've gathered. But in this case, it's not just the farmers that are involved. In fact, the driving force of it is a bloke who's been in advertising and marketing most of his life here and overseas. Can you picture him working with uh, the uh, sheep or the beef or the cattle as they go up the run to the abattoir. It sounds like a really interesting project. You've got my taste buds going. Well, this is the interesting part is that they've got the cafes now moving in, the restaurateurs and uh, some of the uh, food supermarkets. And it is interesting because not only farmers, but you've got, for example, PKF Accelerates, Managing Director Grant Baker, and he's very much looking at it, the marketing side and the logistics. And then you've got a bloke like David Parsons. His family go back well over 100 years as farmers in the area. He's had an illustrious career overseas in international trade, and he came back not just to take over the farm, but he found that it's also part of that that's taking over the abattoir. We've got a very, very diverse area. It's probably one of the richest uh, sort of and most diverse agricultural areas in uh, definitely in South Australia, but in Southern Australia. And we have uh, range from uh, from orchards right through to different uh, livestock production from broadacre livestock production, dairying and uh, to more intensive livestock production. So it's a tremendous area, very picturesque. A lot more people around the provenance of the whole district is now well known in among consumers. And given that wide breadth of primary production, when it comes to meat processing and the abattoir, what sort of livestock is being run in the area? Well, I mean, we've become more and more aware through our marketing organisations and uh, uh, nationally and uh, and statewide to be much more concerned about consumers, but actually we don't find the means of doing that so much. It's a sort of fairly blunt instrument. So what we're looking at now is a, a, a sort of an organisation that will help us meet the needs of our consumers and we can work together over the long term so we can have product that the consumers actually demand, whether they be uh, right across the board from, from uh, wholesaling to retailing on the plate. So in the area, it'd be beef, sheep, and pork? Basically, yes. That beef, sheep for sort of crossbred sheep, which are absolutely real fine, beautiful uh, meat sheep. Uh, we have pork uh, from some very specialised pork, and we have uh, a sort of a dairy production, but we, we also have really top-line uh, beef here, uh, uh, and various ranges of beef uh, available. And there is actually a whole lot of other products like alpaca and specialised game products and everything. But whether, we, um, whether we'll be able to tap all of that is a, a question for the longer term. And what do you run yourself? I run um, basically sheep for wool and meat and also crossbred sheep, which are really fine meat sheep that don't go directly to, to be uh, slaughtered for meat production. And I'm sure that if my family's uh, views are, are any indication they're very good eating sheep. Well, you've had long ties in that area going back uh, a number of generations. 
the abattoir, it was operating for many years, so your families had involvement with it one way or the other. How did the farming community work with the abattoir when it was privately owned? Well, I mean, it's changing circumstances. Really, the, the localised abattoirs in the earlier days were because transport was difficult, but we didn't have the sort of interest in provenance and uh, and, and, and sort of uh, servicing com- communities and, and our consumers. Now, the big concerns have taken over and the smaller ones fell aside. And at the great expense, uh, the cost of that actually was the uh, idea that we lose the intimacy of markets and the provenance and uh, our being in touch with consumers. There was we never really were able to reach those people. So it was been a big left a big hole when uh, this particular abattoir closed up. Now you're on the board of the uh, co-op, and another person on the board who's sitting next to you, and you're not out on the farm at the moment. You're in a studio in South Australia. Is Grant Baker, who's the managing director of PKF Accelerate. And Grant, you've got a long career in advertising and marketing, both overseas and in Australia. Why get involved in the running of an abattoir? That's a great question, Michael. For us, we we got involved through the Regional Development Association, um, who were desperately trying to find a way to get the abattoir reopened and up and running. And we initially looked at it from a, from, a, from a pure feasibility basis, but very, very quickly realized that the role that the abattoir actually played in the community was a, a far larger role and the impact that it had of, it, of, its, of its closing was being felt um, ex- exponentially across, across the area, not just from the farming community, but from the uh, demand side as well, from you know restaurants and uh, butchers, et cetera. We uh, we just saw it as, as as such a key element that the community was missing out on that we took it up quite aggressively. Grant, you've got a long career in advertising and marketing. It's not that many a weekend where you'd be found crutching sheep or working with cattle or pork, but it's you that's been the driver behind the abattoir. It's you that got people like David Parsons, who's the farmer, to come in on the co-op. It's kind of which is first, the chicken or the egg? Well, from our perspective, when we when we did the feasibility study and, and we're modelling all the numbers and we're looking at what it would actually take to create a cooperative that would be sustainable um, and have longevity, it was key that we, we we started the way we wanted to finish with a combination of both supply and demand on that board. Alongside that, we also knew that it was key to have uh, people come into the cooperative, especially as the chair, that had a very strong commercial sense. That it was not just about, you know, I understand sheep and I do some farming every now and then. It was someone who who has had extensive experience in the commercial realms and in the trade uh, the, the trading market. David is on the board of uh, one of our entities. When I was looking for someone to represent the, the farming side of the initial board, it, it was a no-brainer. His understanding of the area, the fact that it's 140 years of family history, um, the fact that he is a grazier, but the fact that he also comes with that extensive commercial experience and knowledge that we're going to need to ensure success, he was the first person that I called. Well, in calling him, why, and given he's got a lot of experience, particularly in Asia, in trade, why, though, didn't you go down the path of just taking it over as a commercial operation? Instead, you chose the cooperative we went through quite an extensive process on this and um, we actually we looked at both business models we looked at the private route and we looked at the uh, cooperative route and the thing that really swung it across to the cooperative route was we understood that this is quite a cutthroat business excuse the pun and uh, there are some large aggressive competitors out there and we wanted to ensure that there was continuity for the community to have a facility that wouldn't be focused on export, that was focused on quality, um, that allowed the availability for uh, smaller farmers to, to process smaller numbers of animals but at the same, and to have the opportunity for private kill. One of the key considerations was the concept of paddock to plate. The sustainability in food production in South Australia has always been a very high on the agenda. But what we're seeing nationally now, it's becoming a, an absolute key issue. And there is no facility in South Australia um, that allows for paddock to play it. Why? Because they are all the large commercial 
uh, abattoirs, the private ones or the mobile ones that operate, um, that do that private work for for smaller farmers, can't produce a license certificate to actually create um, a license to actually sell that meat, which meant that on a private equity model, um, it would be about profit, whereas with a community model and a cooperative model, it was actually about securing the future of the actual community, uh, the farmers, um, and and equally important, the you know the restaurants, the butchers, the supermarkets that are looking for uh, well-processed, high-quality, uh, regular supply of of of, of meat um, that is paddock to plate, and the cooperative model was the only way to do that. David, how important then was it almost to have that trust of the community, and therefore it not being purely a commercial entity? Well, let me say at the outset, uh, I'll give you a bit of a secret that while um, Grant may come with the experience in marketing, he moved to South Australia because he was very interested in the provenance. He moved to South Australia to take uh, to really uh, sort of sip the wine and uh, eat the meat. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that convinced me. And he actually saw this very clearly from the beginning, what the potential there now, the problem is that there's, I have no problem with the big guys, you know, the ones who, the big abattoirs, they keep us sort of a bit dumbed down. So it's very hard to have this conversation between uh, farmers who really nurture their produce and consumers and uh, restaurateurs or butchers who, who really have to answer to their consumers. So, you know, this is a huge, I mean, I think the whole farming community has embraced this with enthusiasm because it it enables us to have a much more intimate, much more productive relationship right down the supply chain, a sort of ways we can do that and match each other up with technologies and so on. It's not just a question of uh, folklore. There are ways that we can work together. So I think really this just adds much more balance to the, uh, the, to the symmetry, and it really was for farmers an asymmetric process before, and so we want to see great success out of this. David, you're a farmer. You're producing uh, dual income with your sheep, both for wool and for meat. Now, the image of the abattoir community run would be of primary producers, but you've touched on it, and that's that idea. As I understand it, there'd be, what, butchers, cafe owners, restaurateurs, and you've got a board member who's in the small goods processed industry. Absolutely. I think that, that it opens up a whole lot more uh, vistas. And it really, you see, with the marketing organisations, we've been saying we have to be answerable to the consumers. We've got, to, we've got to get our meat set up for consumers, our wool set up for consumers and so on. But really, that was talking the talk. We weren't able to walk the walk. And this is really one means that we can do that by actually over the long term as groups of and individual farmers as groups of farmers work with our consumers right along the supply chain and make sure that all parties are satisfied and we hope therefore there's going to be much more symmetry in the actual financial rewards as well so you know we're we're approaching this with great enthusiasm there's it's worth mentioning that um one of the one of the key issues we identified very early in the piece is that up until now, farmers have been forced into being a, a price-taking community. Mm-hmm. The price of meat, um, how it's processed, et cetera, is, is, is kept very great. There is a, a network of brokers and uh, exporters, and et cetera, that, that, that try and keep it unstable. And the challenge that comes with that is that for a farmer, um, it's all about herd management. You know, you don't know what the value of your, of your livestock is over the next three, six months coming into winter, it becomes a higher risk value. Um, and that lack of transparency on the one side is a, ma- is a major issue. On the other side, you have uh, supermarkets and butchers that are looking for reliable, consistent uh, supply of quality uh, produce. And they have an equal challenge and they don't have a route to that. So what we identified was the opportunity to actually create transparency between the supply and the demand side to allow um, farmers to uh, connect directly with um, those retailers or, or those restaurants, which meant that two things were achieved instantly. One, um, there is transparency on pricing um, and the, the, the farmer could actually w- look at working through what the value of their, their stock was over the next three, six months, um, you know, fixed pricing, pricing that made sense, which meant that herd management and control came into it. It de-risked the farmer substantially. And on the demand side, 
it solved a massive issue of inconsist inconsistency of supply of, of, of produce. One of the large supermarket chains in South Australia is a group called Foodland. Um, and one of the, 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 the groups within Foodland recently announced that they are shifting their entire marketing strategy to, to from farm to fork, not just in terms of, of paddocks plate with meat, but a, across the board. And they can't do that kind of operation without a structure or a co-op structure like, uh, like the FCC. So it, it really was, it wasn't simply about, um, you know, what was the easiest or the best. It, it was actually what was solving the key problems of both farmers and uh, the, the demand side of, of, of the process. And that transparency is, is what cooperatives are all about. We talk about the, the reciprocity and the mutual mindset of, of cooperatives. And this entity or the structure allows that to really, really happen in a positive way where it's non-competitive, it's actually working together, and the, the community is so secured and sustainable going forward because they actually own that process and they manage that process. And by having both the, the farmers and the butchers and the restaurants all as members of the same cooperative, there is a requirement to work together and it creates strength, that it creates um, uh, security moving forward in terms of uh, what are the larger meat management companies choose to do. Mm. Grant, with that in mind of having not just the primary producers, but the cafes and restaurateurs and, and processors and small goods, the structure, therefore, of the actual co-op and the shares, I understand there's a joining fee and then membership through shares. How will that actually operate? So there are two primary gates that need to be passed. The first is a joining fee of $100. And then there is a minimum requirement of buying 100 shares at a dollar each, which um, is cooperative capital, which means that you are a shareholder within the cooperative. Um, and what that entitles you to is to then utilize the services. Now, the rules around that, that we are looking at putting in place in, in this case, is that the cooperative board uh, needs to approve each of the members that, that that come on board. And we do this to ensure that it's in the best interest of the community. It's not someone in Singapore that's deciding that this could be a nice idea to make money, but rather those people that are actively involved in the community and in the program. There is a second um, understanding in place in what we call active membership, which means that, you know, it's not that you can you know, sign up for your hundred bucks and uh, be a shareholder and then not use the facility because you actually don't uh, you're not part of the community. If you don't actually use the facility every 18 months, your membership automatically lapses. There is a secondary portion that we're looking at um, in terms of, 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 of actual capital raise, which is the use of community cooperative uh, units or CCUs. Um, and we're in process of, of, of issuing those as well, um, understanding that this is effectively a startup and there are some substantial costs attached to uh, Getting the uh, facility up to up to code and to its licensing requirements around PERSA and the EPA, we will be using CCUs to actually uh, create that funding as well. Grant, I can understand the aspect of the farmers having shares and and being actively involved in the abattoir, getting their uh, stock processed. And you say that everyone who is a shareholder has to use the facility. How does a small goods manufacturer, for example, or the restaurateur, they're not running stock through the abattoir. How is their involvement and them being engaged to use and be actively involved? Well, what they're doing is they're purchasing produce through the abattoir or through the abattoir's uh, financial management platform, which means that they are active members of that. And it's interesting enough, it's not simply just the restaurants or the butchers or the small goods producers. There are hauliers, there are um, transport specialists. There, There is a, a really large community of people that actually um, come together to actually ensure that something can go from, you know, a beautiful uh, piece of green grass on, on in the Fleurio through to uh, a fine restaurant in, in Adelaide. Um, it's, 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 it's actually quite a detailed process. And effectively, the cooperative is the infrastructure that holds all of those things together. 
it allows the processing of of of, of livestock in from uh, the farmers, but it also acts as a as a balance sheet or a bank to allow you know, the, that direct side the the restaurateurs, the small goods producers, um, have visibility and transaction from those farmers either be it directly between the farmer and the demand side or using the abattoir as a financial structure to manage you know, 30 days or 45 day terms that might be outside of the usual uh, farmer's scope of uh, financial management. But it, it really is um, a community that brings it together. We've actually been approached by a couple of people that have said, you know, is there an opportunity to look at a tannery um, linked to the the cooperative? You know, the, we know that the the skins are a, a really good product. We've been approached to say, is there an opportunity to expand into poultry? And the the beauty behind you know the, this larger community is is it means that the community is 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 in control of those decisions. Um, but it's far broader than simply the the restaurateur or and the farmer. It is all of those people in between, including the staff of the cooperative. One of the wonderful things around a cooperative is is that you know staff that that work for the facility or in the business can equally be members and equally benefit from the the work that they do and take pride. It also means that the cooperative is able to attract the the the, the, the kind of talent that we want to. You know, to in in boning rooms and in solar rooms and foremen, etc., to to make this a sustainable, viable operation. It is truly a community cooperative. Hence, the reason you know we we named it on that basis. David, as a primary producer and many generations, and you've probably seen the way your own properties changed over the years and the way the stock. At the same time, how do you feel about the fact that there be a community in a way having a say in what you might be producing because you'll be dealing directly with a small goods processor or a cafe owner as well. We are under no illusions that it's not going to be easy. We've got to work at it because we actually, we have to unlearn a little bit of the sort of very decision-making, which is in silos and think about things right across the supply chain. So we're going to have to, to work at that. And, uh, but I think that, that all the farmers have realized that the, that's where we've got to go and that's where the benefits and the productivity is going to be. I mean, as our consumers are becoming more and more discerning about provenance, they want to know, you know, has that, treat, that animal been treated well? What kind of pasture is it on? What, what has it been eating? I mean, in time, you know, have I been feeding it seaweed so that its, uh, it's methane um, uh, production is less? I mean, we can be rewarded for all of those things where right now, right, right is easy. We send them off the farm and we're a taker, price taker, and we take everything, and it's a pretty blunt instrument. But I think the future is having that intimate link with um, down the supply chain, and so people will have to learn a little bit more and be caring about a bit more up and down the supply chain, but I, I'm absolutely convinced that our farming community knows that's the way of the future. I mean, you know, I can do many more things with it too. I can sell to my 20 friends that ask me for prime lamb uh, every year. I can actually have it legally killed and sell to them or give to them. I mean, there are a whole lots of ways in which this can grow and be a fantastic uh, way. And as Grant said, we can look at things like game, poultry and other other products in the future as we, as we grow, uh, grow toward that. It's not easy, but that's the only way forward, I think. Interestingly enough, we actually asked the community. We didn't just assume what the community wanted. We did uh, quite a substantial piece of work around engaging um, hundreds of, uh, of farmers, of small primary producers, restaurateurs, et cetera, and said to them, what were their challenges? What, what are the things that we believe should be setting the agenda around this? And um, the way that we then re reconstructed the, the cooperative was specifically against that. And the issue of provenance was massive, both in the farming community and in the demand side. The humane management of, of, of livestock, the understanding that you know, transport distances were getting substantially further and further away, which wasn't in the interests of, of, of the livestock. Um, things around quality of services and boning rooms. Um, these were all the things that we didn't assume were what we should put into it. It was actually a direct response by the community. I think we, by the time we had completed, we had over 270 detailed responses from farmers. 
Um, and that then led us to actually do quite a substantial roadshow um, across the Fleurio community where we ran six sessions um, in, in, in different parts of the Fleurio, in, in Wapinga, in, in Strath, uh, KI. And we actually engaged the communities directly. Some of the sessions were fairly robust, um, where people were very clear on what they wanted and what their opinions were. Um, and we took that in. And, and that's that's key to the the, um, the, the, the that, that concept of the ethos of a, of, of a cooperative. So it wasn't that we set the agenda and said, this is what we think it is. It was actually directly driven by the wants, needs, and the voice of farmers, um, of growers, of uh, uh, restauranteurs, small goods pr uh, producers, transport uh, companies across the Florio. The share issue or being a member, and you've made a strong point about the fact that you don't want the big players to come in. So is there a limit on the amount of shares that an individual or a company can buy into and therefore influencing decisions by the board and the rest of the co-op? There are actually two answers to that question. Um, the first is uh, from a straightforward shareholding perspective, no individual can own more than 20% of a cooperative, um, which is a wonderful thing. With the CCUs, theoretically speaking, it can be greater, but we're not going to allow that to happen either. But the more important piece is, is irrespective of your shareholding. If, um, Michael, you decided to join the cooperative and you put your $100 in, and David um, thought this was the, the, one of the best investments in sliced ham, um, but a million dollars in, when it comes down to the board and to voting, you equally carry the same vote. And it's one of the, the, the key sustainable models that we looked at around the cooperative. The idea of uh, in, a, in a private entity, you vote according to your equity, whereas in a cooperative, that's not the case. It's each person is, uh, has, the, uh, has the right to one vote irrespective of, of equity. And that creates protection. And we've seen that play out in, in other states. There is a, a well-established cooperative in New South Wales that is almost 90 years old that has actually been able to survive because of that. And they've, you know, we've talked to them about some of the, the challenges they've had over the, over the years. And that cooperative model of only having one vote has protected them from uh, larger private entities trying to destabilize or, or overrun the ownership of the cooperative. The abattoir has been operating for many years and then it was taken over by another farmer who then decided didn't want to run it. Abattoirs increasingly becoming more and more high tech, which means that are you looking at upgrade and therefore does that also come out of the present investment or are you looking at somehow doing that in a different way? This particular abattoir um, was uh, family owned and then was sold to one of the, the large groups. Um, and the large group decided to close it down, um, and the land was then purchased by a farmer that wasn't interested in running a, an abattoir, just to give uh, structure around that. But yes, uh, technology in, in meat production is really, really interesting. One of the things that we, we, we saw and we looked at when we were, when we were doing the, the financial modeling was that the technology and structure around the actual processing of meat is is pretty good and there's been huge leaps and bounds over the last couple of years using artificial intelligence and all kinds of things like that. But what we saw was really, really lacking was that um, the actual management system that the abattoirs run on was an absolute mess. The large uh, players are running on, on huge ERP systems that cost millions of dollars. The small private guys or the smaller boutique abattoirs simply don't have access to that level of technology. And one of the things that we've identified and are now substantially busy trying to finalize is actually a, a piece of technology that allows us to link the farmer to the to the demand side, but using a, and building a new abattoir management system, um, which means that we can actually future-proof the technology around the abattoir. There is very little that's available in the marketplace currently to do that. With a, a cooperative, one of the things is we need at least 90% of the revenue to flow through from members, and you need to be able to track that. You need to be able to understand what that means from a, a taxable perspective. Um, at the same time, you need technologies around booking livestock in for processing. You need um, the understanding of what services are being uh, on sold, and, and that wasn't there. So we're actually building that at the moment for the abattoir. 
and we think that it's it's going to be one of the key things to future-proof uh, the business and ensure the transparency and relationship between supply and demand. You've looked at cooperatives overseas as well, Grant and Ireland in particular. Is there some tax breaks in Australia for someone that is going into something like the fluoro abattoir that possibly haven't been explored enough by the primary producers or the haulage people that you're talking about? The beauty of a cooperative is that if 90% of the uh, volume is through the members, the, the taxable situation changes substantially. It almost becomes a tax-free transaction. What that means is you're not sitting at a 42% uh, tax rate as a private, a private equity or as a private entity. And what that means is it takes a huge burden off, off the of the operation in terms of, of hard trades. It also means that the return of, of dividend back to the um, uh, the members can be structured in some unique ways where it, it's, it is unfranked, but it can be passed back as uh, at a 12.5% dividend or alternatively, it, it can be provided back as uh, discounted services or reduced costs or issuing of different uh, shared uh, types. Uh, a number of cooperatives, uh, you know, distribute dividends back to their members by issuing what we call A-shares, um, where you know 30% is paid in, in cash and the balance is paid in, uh, in, in, in new equity. So the, the tax position of a cooperative is unique. It really is. Um, and it's the reason why you know, we, we can be really, really community-focused and aggressive in terms of, of that management and control. And it was one of the key th- reasons why we looked at the cooperative model. The issue of cooperatives, it's called a surplus, not a profit. And some cooperatives channel that money not just back into upgrading facilities and maintaining, but also look at um, community projects. Will the co-op be looking at not just providing employment and making sure that primary producers are connecting with um, the value adding of their product? Would you look at some sort of community investment as well? The short answer is I can't make that decision. That's a decision of a board, but we would strongly propose that that be the case. The six pillars in which a cooperative is built, one of them is community and the importance of engagement with community and and the engagement of members within the community. The opportunity around um, looking at, at secondary businesses, around looking at um, other support programs that um, surplus can be channeled in to actually improve uh, the the entire community is 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 generally a, a fairly strong focus of, of a cooperative, and it's something that that we truly do believe in. The what those projects will be um, that needs to be determined by the members. Yes, the short answer is we believe that the um, part of the surpluses need to be reinvested back in the community. I would imagine, in real terms, it will take us about two years to get there. Um, the initial outlay and structuring of the cooperative is, is going to be pressure on the balance sheets. We've tried to uh, protect against that. But by year three, we would imagine that it would be a, a key community member. David, on those roadshows, and you've been wandering around talking to your fellow producers, whether it be in the sale yards as well or somewhere else, are you already starting to think about possibly changing some parts of your operation, not on the wool side, on the meat production side? Absolutely. And I think this gives us more reason to be doing that. And, and, and I've been talking to other producers. For example, we have a particular style of lamb that is demanded by restaurants or butchers. We could work and with other farmers on the Fluria Peninsula that in a slightly different rainfall category or, and so that we can get a product, a common product that would be coming out over a series of months rather than me selling 100 or 200 lambs and that being a one-off thing. So we can actually brand the sort of uh, Fleurier Peninsula to a, to a degree and, and brand our, our, our um, you know, groups of products. And, and this would add to the whole uh, process, I think. Uh, and we're already talking to each other and I believe we're going to do a lot more of that as technology changes. I think farmer groups are getting together and working out how they can improve upon provenance, how they can improve upon welfare, and uh, so this is a virtuous sort of uh, uh, sort of circle in my view and uh, the abattoir is going to be a great catalyst for that and really frankly speaking there is no other alternative model of the big guys that can actually be a, a sort of a, a stimulant or a catalyst in the same way that the uh, uh, Strathalbyn the, the Fleurier community abattoir could do that 
interesting enough, it was one of the key drivers that came through from the guys in KI. Um, the fact that Kangaroo That's Island, Island. Kangaroo Island, which is such an amazing uh, brand across Australia, um, has no capability or capacity to actually brand um, any of their of their meat products. Um, and it's something that the, that uh, is has been strongly uh, recommended to the point where they were actually looking at even uh, building an abattoir on KI. So it's a, it's a great example of how you know this kind of project can influence and change the actions of a community. Paddock to Plate is more than just a primary producer selling their product at the farmer's market. People want to be sure of the provenance of their food, so the farmers on South Australia's Fluro Peninsula are getting together with others in the food chain to ensure that they get high-quality food out of the region. It's all coming from a wish to ensure that an abattoir that served the area for many years will continue, but this time as a cooperative. Traceability is a big issue in the processing of meat. These days, it probably argued that the system's quite good. Are you going to just follow the present criteria for traceability or are there other things that possibly at this level that you'd be implementing, David? Um, I'll hand Grant over to, 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 to let you know about the quite exciting new ways we're going to handle that. But I might say that farmers started out being quite sceptical about traceability because the folklore is that you put your own beef into that small abattoir to be slaughtered and you get back some poorer version as your good, you know, prize animals go somewhere else. So we started out fairly sceptically, uh, thinking fairly sceptically about this. But I think Grant's got some very exciting uh, ways in which this could be really addressed in a, a very uh, much more sustainable in, uh, way. So I, I would hand over to him for that answer, really. So the Abattoir Management Platform that we are developing is built on a Hyperledger blockchain that allows us to look at the origin of the actual animal, where it's come from, its immunization records, how it's passed on uh, maybe through different farmers, which means that we can actually do provenance properly, but the challenge of, of, of traceability through an abattoir has always been a challenge. And as David said, there's, there's huge folklore around that. So what we've looked at is we've looked at a number of new technologies um, to actually ensure that we can track and trace an animal from the point that it enters to the point that it gets delivered to a, uh, a restaurant. There are a number of specialized technologies that we're developing around this using uh, the likes of, uh, of artificial intelligence cameras uh, rfid tags cross scanners uh, we even looking at some um, dna technologies to, to actually take it to that point which are now available but um, there's a fair bit of IP wrapped up in this question. <laughs> and, but I would say that one important element of that too is if, you, if you're starting out with that benchmarking of credibility through the technology, then actually you're building up a fairly credible process. So you can be saying over time that there is no wriggle room, no one's trying to get wriggle room to, to manipulate the process and the, and the tracing. So... What we liked as farmers was that one is going to be benchmarked and set by uh, the technology that the Grant's talking about. But secondly, that's the standard we want to set and that's the standard we're going to keep so we can have trust in the process all the way through. And there's no real substitute for that kind of trust. And we frankly don't always have that in the larger uh, processes. The other key thing around that is the volume that we're putting through. In a boutique abattoir, we can actually use technology like this to manage and ensure traceability. Whereas, you know, if you're processing thousands of animals a day, it's it's never going to happen. David, it being a boutique operation, using uh, Grant's description, you're in the community, you're on the board of the co-op as well, and you're talking about some high-quality meat as opposed to a lesser grade. And you're also talking about wanting that area to be branded, to be known to be producing top-range produce. How do you then deal with possibly a member of the co-op who's a producer and probably not as particular on that high standard that a person like you, will there be room to negotiate with that person or try to get them to improve their product? 
Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in showing by example and setting the standards and showing that there's reward by, uh, by good provenance and by good uh, actions and uh, and there's moral suasion. So, I, I think the market sorts these things out fairly well. And the good part about this cooperative is that it's not a blunt instrument. So there is room for for us to highlight those things. And I think those who are not wanting to follow those sort of benchmarks and standards will not really find much benefit in the process. So I, I, I think the market will sort that out. In setting up the co-op, what sort of hoops have you had to jump through and support from business groups, uh, the MLA, for example, government and people like BCCM as well? BCCM were, were fantastic. We needed to understand um, exactly what the, the the structural process was of setting it up. And we worked with Anthony, who is obviously one of the or key policy advisors, um, to actually guide us around um, what the, the constitution and rules would look like, um, understanding the need around the disclosure statements that needed to be established. And, and that was really amazing. Uh, MBL, Master Butchers um, in South Australia have also been really, really amazing. Jamie Higgins, who's the CEO, has, has given us substantial insight and information. Obviously, they'll need to be a key part of the process moving forward as they are one of the primary equipment pr- uh, providers. And, you know, from a government perspective, we've also worked with PERSA and with EPA to understand exactly what we need to do to get things um, to a standard that is not simply just acceptable for the licensing, but is is more acceptable for what the community wants. The We are in discussion with the state government um, to obviously support the process. There have been some interesting challenges in the cooperative process in that, um, the Department of Consumer Business Services don't really have a lot of attention and focus on cooperatives, um, and it's been fairly challenging uh, getting through that process. We will get there. We also understand that, you know, uh, the the interest that's been driven now in cooperatives in 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 the region is is increasing, and we we would imagine that the, the CBS will start to give greater support in that area. David, walking down the main street is just Alban. The butcher bails you up. Are they all jumping on board, or is there still this wait and see and wanting to know how the co-op's going to work? Well, we've we've got to, as farmers, we've got to move the process forward. No, no, not everyone's going to see this immediately because they they need reliability. They need to be persuaded that we've got a model that's uh, replicable the way along. That every month or every week they can get their produce. That we as farmers are really genuine about producing it, and the abattoir can do that. So you know we've got to earn our right in the world. But I think uh, they'll very quickly find out that we are really willing uh, and able participants uh, to move forward. I mean, I think we also need some uh, support from the consumer side, so we don't just leave it up to butchers. I mean, I, I think there's healthy scepticism all the way along, but I believe we do have a model and a great deal of not just naivety, but real willingness to to move forward with those obstacles in view. So it's not going to be easy, but, but there's a, we, you know, we've really got to make it work. We actually have commitment from at least uh, 50 demand side providers uh, made up of supermarkets and some of the bigger supermarkets in Adelaide and butchers um, already. Um, there are uh, two restaurant groups have also signed into the process. And what that means for us is it is at that level, are we already at our, our, our production capacity as we stand? We, we've seen that interest come through. Um, and those people that, who are early adopters that have come on board first and have uh, come into the process will obviously reap the benefit and the reward that goes with that. From a, a CCU perspective, we believe we're going to be oversubscribed already. Grant, you've talked about how there are supermarkets in Adelaide showing interest in other outlets, and you've ter- used the term boutique. Would the co-op, once it's upgraded and you're pushing through a good number, would you consider export as well? Once again, uh, Michael, that becomes the decision of the board and the members, um, but I don't believe we'll have the capacity for export I actually think moving forward, the the cooperative would need to expand its facilities to manage the paddock to plate requirements in South Australia. Um, I think that we're going to see it grow rapidly. If you consider um, that a a large 
group of four or five supermarkets are probably consuming uh, you know, tons and tons of meat um, uh, a week, it becomes substantial. We know of um, one arrangement where um, a sheep farmer was providing meat to a group of 22 restaurants and they were doing 6,000 tons a year. I'm not sure if that's 6,000 kilos or what, it was a big number. So I actually think the challenge is going to be uh, a requirement to increase uh, the facility's production rather than look for export markets. What about working with other co-ops? Absolutely, we would look at working with other cooperatives. It's part of the mutual mindset. In fact, we re- we really are. Um, we have been working and have had great support from a cooperative in, in New South Wales and another in uh, in Western Australia. And we believe that you know one of the things that we would love to see happen from our side is the technology that's been built for the FCC. We would we will give that to other cooperatives to give them the sustainability model um, moving forward and, and future proofing them too. The mutual mindset is is unique. You know, in, in a private uh, enterprise model, the, the other cooperative is my competitor, and I'm going to try and take him on. I'm trying to get his business. That's not the case here. It is about reciprocity. It is about that virtuous circle that David was talking about earlier. And we really believe in supporting that. It's where our strength is drawn from, by having that mutual mindset and by bringing communities together. David, in going out on talking to other primary producers and associated businesses, do you also see a value in just literally talking to other producers and value-added people involved in value-adding in being able to address possibly issues in the rural sector? I think that's a really a key issue. I mean, we're all facing the cost curve, yeah? And so, and we realize that things are changing. We know probably as much about consumers as anybody, and we sometimes need to work out how we can, how, how do we get the power to address some of those changes? So actually, you know, on a monthly basis, there are meetings right across Ferry Peninsula of like-minded farmers looking at regenerative agriculture, more sustainable activities, uh, looking at ways of fundamentally changing practices to to actually go down this line. So this is actually a complement to a whole range of activities that farmers are doing to change their practices and make them more in line with community and consumer sentiments. So is that widen your own view of what a co-op does? You probably thought, oh, co-op with an abattoir, we'll just move the stock in and it goes out the other end. Well, I, I grew up when in the time when there were all dairy co-ops around the place and they, they were some were well-managed and some weren't. Um, but really, that's the way you did things yeah, in the old days with the dairy industry. But I'm frankly talking uh, with Grant and all the fairly substantial set of top-line advisors who are experts in cooperatives. I've really learned a lot and had a lot more faith in it and realised that actually the whole process, a regulatory process for cooperatives is very uh, positive. It's very... Um, fair and it's something that is actually quite market oriented so i'm I'm much more confident than i would have been with the background of having dairy co-ops that of the 1960s or something do you think people though overall are aware of co-ops still like there does seem to be a bit of a resurgence because of that buy local eat local that sort of thing but despite the fact that people don't realize just how big co-ops are and such as mutual for banking and this sort of thing. Is there a matter of education still in the community? I, I think so. Grant would have met this more than me, uh, but I believe there is need for more you know, education and more publicity there. But I, you know, we, we do not see enough of them. And I think our biggest, the reason we're looking so sharply at this is because we've been looking at big bossy corporates who haven't given us a look in so really that's the way we've looked at it but grant would he's talked to more people out there in terms of the in the information sessions the question we ask in the information sessions and when we did those uh, town hall meetings we asked people if they were members of a cooperative and you know 50 60 70 people in a room and maybe one person will put up their hand and then we turn around and say well who's a member of the RAA which is you know the most trusted brand in south australia which is a mutual and cooperative, and then who, who banks the people's choice, which is a mutual, and uh, who buys their food at uh, the Barossa Cooperative, um, uh, which is which has thousands and thousands of members and is one of the biggest employers in Barossa. 
And suddenly when people start to realize the number of businesses that they engage in on a regular basis um, that actually are cooperatives in South Australia or are mutual organizations, it's, it's, been, it's been really illuminating. Um, I think the opportunity to highlight how many of those companies or how many of those entities that people engage with um, and often the, the ones that high, have the highest level of brand trust like the RAA, uh, like uh, some of the foodland stores, et cetera, or like in South Australia, the biggest pharmacy group here is, is, is National Pharmacies, are cooperatives. Um, and being cooperatives and having that uh, uh, ethical mutual mentality that goes with it, um, I think as people start to realize that that's where you actually can build trust, that's where those businesses are working in your best interest, not in a uh, you know a New York investment house's interest. It's the reason why they they are they are strong, and you get those levels of services and commitment. I think getting that message stronger out into the market, it would be a, a fabulous thing to do. I suppose what is the ultimate? You sit down at a cafe where they're linked to the abattoir. You have a coffee. And you serve up uh, some lamb from your place, David, <laughs> and you're drinking wine from a uh, nearby co-op. Absolutely, that's uh, Grant. Actually, is the uh, is the guide for that tour. He's very, very good. He's got a great nose for it. <laughs> David and I have a deal. He'll he'll choose the steak, and I'll choose the wine. David Parsons is chair of the Fluoro Community Co-op, which is taking over the abattoir. And uh, Grant Baker, who comes from an advertising marketing background, but still very much in tune with this. Best of luck with it. And I look forward to be able to enjoy a magnificent piece of lamb out of the abattoir being served up in a restaurant that is um, a member of the co-op itself. I intend on joining with Michael sometime in the near future to sample the food of the region myself all through the co-op run abattoir. That's right, Mel. Can't you picture yourself sitting down, opening up a white or a red of the region, and then having to decide whether you're going to go pork, beef, lamb, and then um, the veggies of the region as well, all in a restaurant that's part of that co-op. I can't wait for that, Mel. In our next podcast, we'll look at another area that cooperatives are helping our farmers. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Meet the Co-op Farmers. If you'd like to know anything about setting up or running a successful agricultural cooperative, you can find out everything you need to know at the Co-op Farming website. That's www.coopfarming.coop. That's right, C-O-O-P for cooperative. Please, share this with your mates. If you enjoyed this story, we really do want to get the great stories of farming cooperation out there. And remember, in a troubled world, with all of the challenges, but also the opportunities we have, we really are better together. I'm Melina Morrison, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Meet the Co-op Farmers.